So it's good to be back with you this morning. We uh, we were gone last week and uh, went on vacation as, with our, our family and my kids. We went to Pigeon Forge. Anybody been to Pigeon Forge? It is beautiful. It's, uh, we definitely encountered God while we were there. I mean, just being out and seeing His beautiful creation. Um, we just had a good time. But it's good to hear that God uh, moved last week. And I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but God moved. Okay. Yeah? But I'm also not sure if you've aware of it, but God has been moving. Not just last week. The week before that. And the week before that. Like the past several weeks, we have had God moving. Like just in mighty ways. Past two weeks, we've uh, been in prayer. We've been in a spirit of prayer and fasting. As we uh, started off uh, the Easter celebration of Lent and uh, thinking through you know, that, the suffering of Christ, um, we as a church have been praying and reading. You know, many of you probably picked up the devotional and have been reading the same scriptures and just praying and seeking the Lord. And I really believe that God is moving because we have changed our posture. It's less about us, more about Him. You look at Scripture. When people change their hearts, change their expression to be less about them and more about Him, God moves in powerful ways. The past several weeks, we've had several commitments to the Lord. We've had salvations. Like we haven't had salvations a lot in the history of this church. The past 10 years, I look at the stats. There's not a whole lot. But we've had three that I can think of in the past two weeks. One being my son, a four-year-old. Glory to God, right? <laughs> um, you're like, oh, four years old. Yeah, um, God can move on a four-year-old. Just as much as he can on an 80 year old, amen? And the reality is, I'd much rather it be at four years old than it would be at 17 like it was with me. Because he has so much more time to grow in the Lord. God is moving, in case you haven't noticed. So today we start a new series. We're going to be talking about Jesus and, you know, leading to the cross, but we're going to look at encounters. With Jesus. Then in Scripture, you know, people encounter Jesus in special ways, but also we can encounter Jesus right now. Has anybody ever had an encounter with Jesus? Yeah. I have. He still moves 2,000 years later. His story lives on. It wasn't just some old story that died with him. No, it continues on. His story impacts us, but He, through His power and His Spirit, also impact us as He actually shows up. And He shows up in our services. He shows up as you're driving along in your car and you're singing out to Him while you may be in the shower, whatever it may be, God can show up. It can be at your work. You can have an encounter with Jesus no matter where you are. I don't care if you're in the valley deep, 
when in despair and where God, you just feel so much darkness on you, God's love can even reach you down there. Or even if you're on the mountaintop, He can reach you there as well. So today we'll be in Mark, Mark 14. Um, at the end of uh, Jesus' life, uh, the, the gospel gets really dark. Um, you know, he enters into a time where the, his end is near, and he predicts that to his disciples and, and shares that. And, you know, we see all different kinds of things just where just like a dark cloud just comes over the end of this story. But in the midst of it, there is a light that shines. In a moment, it's so subtle that we could even miss it. See, things jump out to us naturally as we read through the gospel stories, things like Jesus predicting his death and, and people not understanding it, the disciples getting a little upset with it and like, we don't want you to leave, you know, and even, you know, as they pause and they have this last meal together, he's upset, or, you know, the disciples are upset because they don't want to have that last meal, you know, and, and they don't understand what he is about to do. Then we see, you know, things like he's in the garden, and he sweats drops of blood because he understands what he's about to do. And you see this dialogue with the Father. Then you see all his arrest and betrayal and all this that's going on. And it's easy to miss this story in Mark 14. And so we'll be in Mark 14, verses 1 through 9. And so as you're turning there, you know, we... This passage picks up at a, at a home, and it's um, the home of Simon. Simon, it says that he is a leper. Simon the leper. And if you know anything about that culture, you understand lepers don't really, like, they're, they're outsiders. Like, you couldn't, like, go over to their house and dine with them. Yet, we're here at this leper's house. So we can only, you know, think about this and speculate that this leper has a story and it's the one of healing because healthy people would not have eaten with a leper and yet healthy people are dining here and so we don't know if Jesus himself healed this leper or not but we can um, you know speculate that maybe he did and this is a, a way of thanking Jesus in other passages of Scripture have given this account. There's different uh, uh, variations of this, you know, different accounts of it. Um, and Simon is also mentioned as being a Pharisee, <laughs> which, you know, Pharisees didn't get it many times, but yet he invites Jesus over. But here we are, we pick up in verse 1. Now the Passover meal and the feast of the unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. You see the hearts of those, the teachers of the law. Their, their hearts are calloused. They've been calloused. For quite some time throughout the gospel story, the gospel narrative here of Jesus, you know, and his disciples, you see how the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they, their hearts are calloused to the point where they are plotting to kill Jesus, but yet they're smart about it. Because they know if they do it at the wrong time, there will be a riot. 
there will be a revolt. And the Jewish people didn't want that because they didn't want to start a revolt with the Romans. And later on in the story, you see that, that, was, that the opposite thing takes effect as well. The Romans didn't want to start a revolt as well. Pontius Pilate didn't want to start a revolt. But here we pick up in verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table. Now, let's stop there. Okay. How many of y'all have recliners at your house? Okay. I love my recliner. Like, that's my seat. Like When I sit down... You know, I kick it back. I love a recliner. Well, that's not the same thing here, okay? So we have, like, tables that we eat at, you know, and they're higher. They typically go to waist height, typically, and you have high back chairs. That wasn't the, the way that they did things in that culture. They actually were lower to the ground. And so Jesus was reclining at the table, He was laying down, really, like, and bent over towards the table. And so as we read that, we have to picture that going on. So while he was in Bethany, reclining at a table in the home of a man named Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor will always be with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare, my, prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So we got to think, you know, what's going on? They're reclining at the table in many accounts, we see this woman, they, they give a name for her as, as Mary. Mary of Bethany, we hear that. And there's different uh, accounts of it, different perspective. And you think, at one point, it's the head that he's anointed at. At one point, it's the feet. And the reason why I highlight the reclining at the table is maybe she couldn't get to his head at first, so she started at his feet. Or maybe she started at his head and ended up at his feet. No matter what, this was a lot of oil that is poured out on Jesus. It would have started from his head. It was so much that it would, I mean, a whole year's worth, a year's worth of wages, right? It's a lot of oil, perfume poured out. It would have rolled down his beard, all down his body, all down to his feet. Right? And she was anointing him. In that culture, though, what this anointing was, it was very significant. In Israel, Israel's kings were anointed with oil. They were sometimes referred to as God's anointed ones. Messiah literally means anointed one. And so Jesus is our what? Our Messiah, right? He is our anointed one. He is our anointed one, the anointed one. Also, in this culture, priests were anointed at their ordination. 
So Jesus is our high priest as well. He is our king, but he's also our high priest. And he is anointed. Also in this culture, holy objects such as the temple altar, the lampstands were anointed during ceremonies, dedicating them to sacred use. Jesus Christ was set apart. He was anointed. Oil was also poured on the guest to send a message. You are special. And in this culture, in a home, they would actually have oil available. But yet it does not say that Jesus was anointed right when he came in. So oil was used for their hair too because they're, you know, this was a culture where they had to walk miles and miles and in the, you know, dirt and their feet were dirty. You know, that's why we have the, the, uh, where they wash their feet. But their, their hair was exposed to the, the heat all during the day. And it dries out. It was hot. So oil would be there to provide for their hair as well. So it was there. But this was a significant moment, though. This woman took her very expensive oil. It wasn't just some just generic oil. This was ex- expensive oil, you know, Oil that had traveled a long ways with nard. And, and so it would travel a long ways. And, and so she, it was very special to her. It was a beautiful fragrance. It was a beautiful perfume. And here we are. We see this act of worship because she understood who Jesus was. She understood what he was about to do and what he was about to go through. And so she anoints his body to prepare for his burial. She anoints his body because she understands that he is their king. She anoints him because she understands that he is a priest, the high priest. She understood where the Pharisees didn't understand. They were trying to turn on him and betray him and and to sell him out and to, to kill him. The disciples, they didn't truly understand. They wouldn't understand until later on, after his death and resurrection, until they would actually have to... He appeared to them, and then finally they would get it once the angel would say, What are you doing? Go, right? He's gone. Go, as he said. But here, this woman, we see such a reckless act of worship. A reckless act of worship. Society would have said it was reckless because here we see a woman. Chances are she was an unmarried woman, didn't, see, didn't share that detail, but chances are she was an unmarried woman, and unmarried women should not have touched men in that culture. Yet she did. We see in other accounts of this same story, other gospels sharing this, that she had her hair let down. That was a big no-no in that culture. Their hair should have been up, but yet hers was down, and it says that she was, in other gospels, it says that she was down at his feet, She was crying, crying over his feet. Tears were filling up and and dropping to his feet. And she would take and use her hair to wipe it away and wipe the oil as she was anointing him. All done for worship. She knew what he was. She knew what he was about. She knew what he was going to do. She didn't care what other people looked like. Whenever they or what they thought of her. She was willing to be reckless. My question to you this morning is, are you willing to be reckless 
as you worship God? Do you let other people's opinions stop you from the way that you express yourself in worship? My first point is this. Worship is costly. It costs you something. Worship is costly. Darlene Jeck, uh, who wrote the song Shout to the Lord, said this as she was describing um, you know, just amazing worship, reckless worship. She says this, We're to be overgenerous in our praises to God. Extravagant worship means to be um, elaborate in our offering. To be elaborate in our offering of admiration to Him. Our worship is to be over and above responsible limits previously established. <laughs> previously established. Think about You've had encounters with God. Do you hold your encounters with God going forward because, like, like you encountered God last? So you encountered God a certain way. Maybe it was at a revival and you are only looking for an encounter with God that like you experienced at a revival. Your heart's wrong. Your heart is wrong if that is the prerequisite of experiencing extravagant worship. She goes on and says, What makes worship extravagant? Sorry. What makes worship extravagant? It must cost us something. Worship is an act of obedient faith, even when circumstances offer opportunities to fear. Hmm. See, here she was. She held in her hand this alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. It says it's more than a year's wages, and she broke it and poured it out and anointed the King of kings, the Lord of lords. She anointed the Holy One that was there to be the Messiah, the once and only Messiah, the one that would be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. She anointed Him. But to many of her, she was foolish. She was considered undignified. (laughs) She didn't care if she was humiliated, that she humiliated herself. She did not care. She put everything on the line for an act of worship because she understood who Jesus was. My question to you this morning is this. Do you understand who Jesus is in your life? If so, then your worship should look a lot different. To pour out perfume over a guest's head at a dinner was a sign of high respect and adoration, which is exactly what she did. But rather than recognize this display of deep love and affection for Jesus, the gathered guests criticized her. Many of you might have criticized other people of how they express themselves in worship. Don't let that be. Don't be like the gathered guest. Jesus looks at her, looks at the gathered guest, and he stops them. They rebuke her. He pretty much rebukes them. He calls the woman's actions beautiful because she honored him. What the disciples saw as a waste, 
Jesus saw as a beautiful act. And the reality is this, is no gift you give in worship is ever wasted. No gift in worship is ever wasted. So this morning, is your worship costing you something? Is it costing your reputation? Does your worship sometimes make you look foolish? Because you fully understand who Jesus is. Or does your worship have to fit in a box? <laughs> and it have to be just a certain way? Because if so, then your heart's not right. You're worshiping something that is man-made religion. And it needs to be rebuked in Jesus' name. Because it is not worship. Worship shouldn't be in a box Worship should not be contained to this building even. Worship should not be contained to Sunday morning. Worship is our act every day, surrendering ourselves over to Him, for He is worthy. Giving Him praise, for He is worthy. All day, every day. Whether you're alone or whether you're in corporate gathering, whether you're in your car or whether you're in the office cubicle, whether you're on the farm or whether you're at home in dinner, it doesn't matter where you are, God wants your worship. And it's a 24-hour, seven days a week thing. Worship also impacts people. This perfume would have filled the room. Like I said, this, this culture, they traveled a lot, miles and miles. And, and I don't know about you, but they didn't really have deodorant and antiperspirant. So chances are it was kind of a smell, aroma that filled the room. They were used to it, right? If we had that type of culture, we would get used to it. But once something beautiful, like that perfume, would have filled the air, it would have changed the smell. Everyone would have known that this had filled the room, that this was costly perfume. They would have recognized it. It would have impacted them. This woman's act of worship would have impacted everyone in the room. My question, does your worship impact other people? I'm a father of three girls, and they love to, you know, like girls, they like to use perfume. You know, we try to teach them, you know, just a little bit goes a long way. Well, they don't really listen <laughs> always. And so I walk into the room and I'm like, whoa, I'm hit by a wall. And a lot of times I'm very sensitive to smells and so I'll get headaches. And I remember walking into my mom's and we, we go, go over there for um, various occasions. And my mom loves scentsy candles. Anybody know what scentsy candles are? Right, there's a little plug-ins that you put on your wall and they burn and they, they're beautiful smells, but... My mom loves them so much, and they fill her room and the smell. I mean, it's a beautiful smell, don't get me wrong. But every time I enter her house, I go around, turn that off, unplug this one, unplug this one. It's just overwhelming. And that's the thing with this. It would have overwhelmed the room. When, they would have, when she would have broken that glass or that alabaster jar, rather, it would have filled the room with that fragrance. We... According to Paul's teaching, we are the aroma of Christ. We are to be the aroma of Christ wherever we go. How many of y'all have ever been to a bonfire? Or have ever been to a campfire? 
doing, you know, roasting s'mores or roasting hot dogs, you know. Anytime you spend time around that fire, you know, you're just there for a minute. You're around that. You go inside or you go home for the night. You smell your clothes. You smell exactly like that campfire. The more you spend with Jesus Christ, the closer you get to Him, the, clo- the more you grow in Him, you will start to be a beautiful fragrance that will fill the room. When people encounter you, they will encounter the joy of the Lord because it's all over your face. It's in the words that you say. The things that you do will be an expression of that worship that you have, that adoration that you have to Jesus Christ. Do you have the aroma of Christ on your life today? Some people, they are going to love the aroma of Christ. And they're going to love that. And they're going to be drawn to that. But others will not like it. Others will not like it. They will encounter that aroma and they will run from it. They will, they will hate it. Because some people are drawn to God, to God. They're drawn to Christ. But some people are not. The gospel can be very offensive at times. Some people will want to know more about the joy of the Lord that's inside of you. They will want to know more and more of the worship that you display on a regular basis. But yet some people, because they hate Jesus, they will also hate you. And that's okay. That should not change your worship. Your worship, true worship, should impact other people. It can impact them positively. It can impact them negatively. But it will impact them. Your worship isn't true worship if it isn't impacting people. If people encounter you and they don't see the joy of the Lord on your face, they don't see the joy of the Lord in your conversation with them, it probably isn't true worship. Because true worship should embody that. Worship is Christ-centered. This woman was centered around Christ. Everything that she did, every aspect, she broke it. She gave her everything. She didn't care about what everybody was thinking. She was all about Christ. Is your worship all about Christ? Or do you allow it to be about you at times? When you make it about you, you're starting to worship flesh. When you make it about Christ, you're entering into the Spirit. Make sure that your worship is Christ-centered. Every aspect should be Christ-centered. See, Christ, Jesus Christ, was this woman here at Bethany. She understood what He was about. She was, you know, being admiral of Him. She was worshiping Him. She was giving her all to Him because she knew that He will one day die for the sins of the world. She knew that He would do what He said He would do and He would one day rise. She gave her everything. Are you willing to give your everything? So maybe you're here this morning and you're wondering about what I'm talking about. Why would this woman do this? It doesn't make sense in your head. The reason why she would do this is that Jesus loves you. Jesus loved 
her. Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he was willing to go and leave the throne room of his father. And God the Father sent his son and he emptied himself out. Becoming a servant. He humbly died for the sins of this world. The sins that break the heart of the Father. Every sin. Not just this little sin. Not just this big sin. Every sin He died for. But He also didn't stay down. He didn't stay dead. Glory to God, He rose from the dead. He conquered the grave. And Paul says that one day He will be bowed before Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow and declare Him the King above all kings. My question this morning to you is, how will you respond to Jesus? Will you be like this woman and give her everything? Or will you be like the others in the room and criticize and be super critical? Will you be like the Pharisees that didn't fully understand what Jesus was about. I hope that you choose to respond like the woman at Bethany and give your everything in worship. As they sing, they're going to actually sing the story. This is the story of Mary at Bethany. As you listen, maybe the Lord will speak to you. Maybe He's convicting you. Maybe you need to come forward and, and just kneel at this altar for prayer. I invite you to come forward in this moment.